in light of uh, what appears to be like perpetual gains of wickedness almost on a daily basis, um, I am asked quite frequently by people, now what? Like, now what? Uh, what do we do? What, what should Christians be doing as, as darkness descends uh, in, a, in our nation and around the world? How, how should a Christian respond? Uh, we could answer that question by uh, going through the Old and New Testaments and looking at how saints in similar situations responded uh, to similar times. Uh, but John really gives us uh, all that we need to know, uh, starting in 1 John chapter 1, verse 28, uh, through chapter 4, verse 19, which is a section. Um, we are only going to look, I know it will probably be no news to you, or you will not be shocked. We're only going to look at one verse today, uh, verse 28 of uh, chapter 2. Uh, but that begins a new section. And we know it begins a new section because in verse 28, the very first two words, and now, which he starts off with, uh, introduce you uh, in Greek to a new section. So if you look at the last section, when, uh, two weeks ago when I was here, uh, we spent several weeks uh, studying the section prior to this. Basically, John equipped the churches in Asia Minor, which were in modern-day Turkey, um, on the western uh, coast near the Aegean Sea. He equipped them with how to handle false teaching. Their false teaching were Gnostics. Uh, I won't go into Gnosticism because I've done that several times. Uh, but these uh, people had infiltrated the churches with false doctrine and had uh, duped Christians or were in the process of duping Christians into buying into their system. So on the last section that we spent several weeks studying, he talked to those Christians about how to push back against false teaching that seeks to infiltrate the church. Now he's going to switch gears uh, in verse 28 of chapter 2 through chapter 4, verse 19, uh, and answer your question, what now? What now? As times are tough and times are evil, what should the Christian be doing? Uh, this whole section uh, is also, we know it's a section uh, because it is also built around the, uh, the, the uh, rhetorical structure called inclusio. So inclusio, which I've told you before, uh, is you begin one way and you end the same way. So this is a great way to build a case if you're an attorney. You say this, you state your evidence, and uh, etc. Then you come back around and you, you drive home the deal with similar type terminology. That's what John does here. And so it's like wrapping a beautiful bow around what you're saying to focus attention on this section. So if you want to know, like, what's the heart of this book? This is it. It's, it's what should you be doing in light of the fact that false teachers uh, are proliferating prior to the coming of Christ. What should you be doing? Uh, and I will just show you quickly how, how we know it's a section based on inclusio, based on the words that are used. So if you look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 28, he says, uh, And now, little children, abide in him, that's Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. That's verse 28. Uh, here's uh, verse uh, 17 of chapter 4. Uh, says, by this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Uh, if you look at both of those texts, uh, inclusio uh, typically uses the same kind of wording to let you know I'm talking about what I opened with. Uh, the key word there, which you could probably all see is what? Are we paying attention? Or is it too early? Uh, too early. It's the word confidence. That when Jesus appears, he wants you confident. That when you see Christ, that you'll be confident, which leads to the, the, the observation, some Christians will not be confident when they see Jesus. Do you hear me? Why? Because they were not living as closely with Christ as they should have. So when he appears, it's kind of like, uh-oh, that's Christ. I'm not walking like I should have. So the whole call of this section is to walk the way that you're supposed to walk, the whole section. Uh, so that's going to be our main motif today as we look at this. So the whole section is wrapped up, uh, wrapped up like a giant bow. So uh, what we want to do is look today, just as I said, that first verse where he's going to talk about what does bold belief look like in trying times. And I would say our times are trying. 
In fact, in our culture, they're trying to rewrite even down to what you think about reality. Uh, reality is not reality anymore. Uh, perversion is not perversion anymore. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable, the lawlessness. So what am I supposed to do as a Christian? Uh, he's going to answer that starting in verse 28. So here he's going to give us the premise that bold belief strives for one main thing, consistent obedience to Christ. What greater thing can a non-Christian have in godless times than to see a godly person? You hear me? What does the place where you work need more than to see you living Christ out before them? That's what they need. And so this is what he's going to tell them here in, in verse 28. It says, and now little children, abide in him. Uh, and sorry for the Greek, I'll explain it to you in just a minute. Um, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at his coming. So I already told you that the whole section, this, this chi noon here, uh, lets you know that it's a new section is coming. But notice how he talks to the people here. He calls them like little children, technia, little children. How old is he? 90 plus. Uh, and everybody else in his church is to him like a little child. And so he, he, he tells these Christians who are struggling with false teachers, who have split the churches, destroyed the churches, caused all kinds of disunity. He comes to them and says to them, you know, I need to talk to you like little, little children. I'm your father, spiritual father, and I just need to woo you back into a loving relationship with Jesus. No yelling at him, no scolding him, just a loving, kind pastoral uh, father coming to talk to his Christians. And if you are a spiritual leader, probably you should take note. Uh, of how to talk to, to Christians, because it's with that loving kind of wooing kind of language. So he says, uh, and now little children, he tells you by way of command um, in the Greek text, it says, minete in autu, in, remain in him, remain in him. Uh, this is a command in Greek to remain in Christ. So if it's a command, it's not a suggestion. So you can't sit here and go, okay, I'm a Christian. I just kind of pick and choose what I want to do. Uh, not here you don't. Here the command is to remain in him. In who? In Christ. Uh, we need to study what that means because some people find uh, they don't, they get confused when they misinterpret it. So we want to be very precise on what this means. So this particular command is a present active imperative. Present meaning um, it has several classifications grammatically. So the, the finer points are extremely important because if you classify this present tense text as a customary present tense, it means this is what you should do, but you might not do it. Because why? Well, you have a self-will. You might be saved as a Christian, but you still have what Paul talks about in Romans 7, the problem with the flesh. The things I would do, I do not. You ever have this happen to you? Today I'm living for Christ. You don't even make it. I mean, merge onto 495 and you've already blown it. I mean, it's just, you know, oh, I can't believe it. Um, and, and so it's that uh, abide in Christ. It, it's this command, but it's a customary use of the command as a grammatical option. Um, uh, if it was gnomic, it would mean true for all times. But, but you know, if you look at your life, I don't always remain in Jesus, right? Do you? No, I mean, no, because things happen. Uh, the flesh gets the best of you sometimes. So uh, I would say that it is a customary use of the present tense command that strive for this. What greater thing could you strive for is that I walk with Christ intimately, but also cut yourself some slack to know you're going to blow it. And when you do that, then that's when first John 1, 9 comes in. Remember that? What, what is it? You, you know what it says? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He, that's Jesus. Why, why is it conditional? Well, because you need to confess. And some Christians, well, they have hard heads. And it might take a while for them to confess. So it's an imperative. Uh, it's a present uh, active imperative. Active, uh, it's not a passive. Passive means the subject, uh, you are being acted upon. Uh, it, but it's active, which means it's your choice. 
You, you can't do the... Remember Flip Wilson? I love Flip Wilson. What was his big statement? The devil did what? The devil made me do it. He blamed the devil on everything. So you cannot pass the blame on the devil attempting me to do this and I bit the dust. No, this is an active imperative. It's on you to fulfill it. So you can't say, oh Lord, when you see Jesus, I would have done better, but it was my wife. Oh Lord, you know the children that you gave me. They pushed me, all my buttons all the time. I constantly blew it. If you wouldn't have given me in those children, I could have been a great Christian. Okay? No excuses here, right? Why? Because it's an active imperative. And here, if this is your first Sunday here, we do analyze grammar. Why? It matters. Because it's inspired grammar from the God himself. So back to the, back to the sermon. Um, so he says, uh, you need to abide in Christ. So this is a word, uh, minnow, the, the particular verb, uh, basically means, he uses it all throughout the book. Uh, this is his main word. He's talking about having a great relationship uh, with Jesus takes a lot of work. So when you get married and you marry that sweet thing that she's just all that, he's all that, you're thinking, this is going to be easy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that true? No, nah, not really. Just give it a week, give it a month, give it a, give it a year. You know, stuff's going to happen, right? You're going to have a bad day. She's going to have a bad day. She's going to be moody. He's not going to be moody. He's, what's her problem? I mean, it's just, it's just life, is it not? And so when we think about abiding in a relationship, it takes a lot of work. Same thing with Jesus. It takes a lot of work on your part. He's perfect. He's good. Problems with, well, you're obedient, you're disobedient. So to remain in Jesus means you work at constantly keeping that intimacy with Jesus and keeping sin out of your life so that you, you keep that intimacy with Jesus. So he is not, hear me out on this, he is not talking about salvation. Some people believe this. If he's talking about salvation, then that means my salvation is a conditional thing based on my performance, which is not the gospel, right? You are saved by grace through faith, not of yourself, so that no one can boast. You're saved by grace, not by your work. So he's not talking about continually maintain your relationship with Jesus so you can stay in Jesus and be saved. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about your position in Christ. He's talking about your performance, your position is holy. That's how you get into heaven. What's the problem? It's the performance stuff. That's the problem. So he's talking about performance here in this passage. Um, abiding with Jesus. I just have to ask you, how are you doing? I have to ask myself all the time, how am I doing? You know, I mean, it, remember I've told you before, I don't like people who cut. Remember I've confessed. Remember? I got it to Germany. Guess what happened? Somebody cut. They're in German. No way. Kein Weg. No way. That's not happening. I mean, <laughs> and the couple I was with watched our services and they said, hey, we heard you don't like cutters. What are you going to do? I'm like, it, I'm not doing anything. You know, it's just, you're constantly challenged, are you not? The old man, I don't care what continent you are on, you can't leave the old man behind. I've landed in Germany. I'm freeing Jesus. No, no, the devil's there. So, how do you go about abiding in Christ? Uh, I'll just give you a couple ideas how to abide in Christ because he just said you need to do this, all right? So in case you forgot, here's what you should be doing. Number one, to abide in Christ, you should be reading, studying, and applying the word of God. Because if you read and you study and you don't apply, you're just an arrogant Christian. Now you need to be humble, man. Read, study, and apply the word of God. Don't read it, study it, and go to your husband, hey, this is for you, Okay? Two, respond quickly to the conviction of the Spirit. Like, when you leave this service this morning, if something convicted you, like you felt like ducking spiritually, oh man, he was totally talking to me. Now that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. You should get right with God before you leave this place. 
Uh, three, seek daily the filling and the control of the Holy Spirit. Why? You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. That, that's never going anywhere. The problem is the filling or the control of the Spirit. How much does he control you? So God, asking God, Ephesians 5, 18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. I have to daily ask God, fill my vessel because my flesh seeks to control. Number four, walk in the Spirit, not by the flesh. Today, God, I will walk by the power of the Spirit, not by the flesh. I blew it yesterday. You forgave me. I confessed, but I walk by the power of the Spirit today. Make that determination. And lastly, pray. Maintain an active prayer life because no human relationship, I don't care if you're dating, uh, married for 50 years, I don't what your situation is, no relationship can be intimate if you don't talk to each other, right? And if you feel like, if you feel like God is like removed from you, he didn't move. Amen. Who moved? You did. He's just, he's just standing there waiting to hear from you. And so just maintain that prayer life. So that's a little sermon in and of itself. That was extra. How do you abide in Jesus? Well, there are some ideas. Um, how are you faring? Are you abiding or drifting? You cannot be, you know, in the middle. Is you either abiding with Jesus or you're drifting? Um, Textually, why should we abide in Jesus? What does John say? He says that now little children abide in him. Uh, and then you will notice here in this clause, he says over here, abide in him so that, in Greek, this is a henna clause. Henna can be, uh, it's a purpose or a result or your two grammatical options. So reminding him with the purpose that I will have confidence when I see him or abiding him with the result that I will have confidence. Uh, I, I choose uh, not, not result here because results suggest that that's going to happen, that I'll have confidence. But since he just gave me a command telling me you might not always abide, shoot for it, then I don't think it could be uh, uh, the result because it's not guaranteed. So what's the purpose? Well, so walk tightly with Jesus so, so that, that my purpose in life is when he appears and I see him and the trumpet sounds, I'm going to be going, you know, the trumpet, when the trumpet of God sounds, and I don't care what you're doing, driving at the Pentagon, wherever it is that you are, the trumpet goes off. You don't go, uh-oh. You go, oh, yes. You hear me? There's a difference. You understand the difference? Uh-oh is, oh, could I have a couple more minutes to get my act together? Oh, yes is, you're Pentecostal alive in Jesus, right? Hallelujah. It's the trumpet. Uh, man, I'm leaving behind the mortgage, car payment, high gas, taxation, problems, awesome. Oh, yes. Okay. So why should you do that? Well, he tells you two reasons why you should walk closely with Jesus uh, so, so that you, that you will, he tells you two things so that you can have confidence when he appears. And number two, so you can have no shame when you see him, which suggests some Christians will not be confident and some Christians will have shame. All right. Um, but there's other things I want to talk about. I mean, probably not shocking to you because there's just too much in here. So we want to talk about uh, that when Jesus appears in this text, it's not an if thing, it's a when thing. Now, if you're a Christian, it's like, well, uh, Jesus might come back. No, it's, he's coming back. He's coming back. Uh, and he is, he's, wow. Okay. Over 300 times in the New Testament, it is stated that Christ is returning. Hello. How hard is your head? 300 times, one scholar, because I read his stuff, counted out how many times does it say the Lord is returning? 300. Guess what? It's not if, it's when. When's Jesus coming back? So since we know that Jesus is coming back, that should definitely change how you function, right? 
Remember, are you biting or are you drifting? Which one of the two? So Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, his great Olivet Discourse, spoken from the Mount of Olives, overlooking the Valley of uh, uh, Kidron, uh, and looking at the Temple Mount, uh, he, he, he told the disciples, I, I am coming back. I'm going to shake the foundations of the earth. I am going to come back, and the godless are going to have to give account for their godlessness, uh, and I will, I will rule with the rod of iron, and I will set up my kingdom, but I will come in the, with the glory of all the angels. He says it. So, un unfortunately, Christians get uh, too wrapped up in this world. You know, you leave church. Hey, who's playing today? What game's on? I don't know who your team is. It won't matter in eternity, will it? I'm just trying to clue you in. Yeah. Nationals, God's team. No, I think it's the Dodgers. But, I'm, but I, you know, I'm just saying. But I don't think Dodger Blue is going to be paramount in heaven, right? I might be looking around for Lasorda. But, you know what I'm saying. We get too caught up in the here and now. Like, stuff of life and you get distracted and that's why paul says in, in colossians chapter 3 verse 2 it's a command set your mind on things above not on things on the earth which is a whole nother sermon am i too preoccupied with the things of this old planet you know when i last week during you know in the early uh, morning when we took the tram up to the ten thousand foot zugspitze mountain scary that that was scary they, they had a glass floor in the tram at one point not helpful. <laughs> you know, and when you get up there and you look at it, you can see into Austria, you can see into Sweden, you can see into Germany. It was just unbelievable. And you're standing there, and you know, our friends are running over to the railing, and it's a 10,000 foot drop. Come over here. No. No way. No way. I could, it's like magnetic vertigo pulling me over. I don't know if I can do it. So I just kind of slowly slid over there. You know, I mean, like, oh my Lord. But, but you see all that, and it's like, man, what a viewpoint. What am I worried about with my life back home? Do you know what I'm saying? The, my, our friend, uh, Gretchen, we asked her, like, when you think about this mountaintop and how glorious it is and the glacier and everything, what do you think of? She said, one word always comes to mind when I bring friends there. One word, majesty of God, majesty. And I told her, boy, you were right about that. I get chills. I'm now just even thinking about it. So get your mind off the earthly stuff. Keep them on the Lord and what lies ahead because he is coming back. Why? Because he told you over 300 times. Now, Number two, which divine return is he talking about? Because he says the, he, he is coming back. So he, he wants you to have confidence and no shame when he returns in judgment. Okay, well, how many times is Jesus coming back? Two. Two main ones that are coming. What's the next one? Well, I think the, the next one is the rapture. And then there's a seven-year tribulation. And then there is the second coming of Christ. And there are two totally distinct events. Now, what John uses here in this text, when he talks about the coming of the Lord, he uses the word parousia, parousia, the coming of the Lord. Parousia is the main word for the uh, second coming of Jesus. But that doesn't mean it can't also apply to the rapture of the church, because that's also a coming. That's what the word parousia means. Somebody's coming. So I'm going to show you the distinct the difference between uh, the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Because he says, I want you to so be in love with Jesus and walking closely with him so that when he appears, you have confidence and no shame. When it's a time for the judgment. Well, which one's he talking about? Rapture. What's different? Well, think about the rapture. It's a meeting them, Jesus, meets us in the air. Second coming, he takes us with him back down to the planet. Totally different. John 14, 3, he takes believers to heaven. Uh, John, uh, Revelation 19, he brings believers back to earth in the second coming. John 14, 3, he comes for his saints. And, John, and in Jude chapter 14, or chapter 1, verse 14, he comes with his saints. First Thessalonians 4, 17, only believers see him when he comes in the rapture. 
Revelation 1, 7, all the people will see him. 1 Thessalonians 5, no signs precede it. Boom, you're just out of here. Many signs precede the, the second coming of Christ. Uh, Revelation discloses those to you. And then in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, the tribulation begins when the church is gone. And uh, Revelation 20, the millennium begins when Christ comes back. He reigns from Jerusalem. Many differences between the two events. So which event is he talking about in this text before us? First John 1, 28. I don't think he's talking about the second coming. Uh, I think he's talking about the rapture of the church. That at any moment Christ can appear, the trumpet sounds, and he wants you to have two things in your life. Confidence when you stand before Jesus and no shame. You follow me? You follow me? What are some of the reasons for the rapture of the church? Because you may not believe it. Help me, I'll let me convince you in like a couple of minutes. Uh, here's some reasons for the rapture. Of, I've read a whole paper on this. There's just a couple of ideas. The word church never occurs in the book of tribu the tri tribulation section of Revelation 4 through 18. That's where it occurs. That's, that's, the, that's the tribulation. Ecclesia, church, never appears there. Why? It's only in chapters 2 to 3. And then it's at the end when Jesus comes back because the church is with him. Where were they prior to that? With him in heaven. At the end of the tribulation, the church is mentioned by an angel of judgment as being in heaven. Revelation 19, great second coming chapter. Uh, another argument, uh, number three. God did not promise to keep the church through the tribulation, but to keep it from it. From it, totally different. That's why prepositions are important. Uh, the sudden spiritual apostasy, which is going to sweep over the world, which you're seeing now, apostasy, that's shocking. It's nothing like what's going to happen when the church isn't here. Because when the church isn't here, we are the speed bump to the devil. We are what holds back the proliferation of great evil. But when the church is removed, well then, well, all things break loose. Uh, moving on. I have 85 of these. Just hold on. Just now. <laughs> uh, what would be blessed about the hope of the Lord's appearance if you had to go through the tribulation? That wouldn't be blessed. That'd be tough. Uh, Christ coming with his saints in Revelation 19, which is clearly the second coming, supports the rapture doctrine. A doctrine. Absolutely. We come back riding with Jesus on horses. And if you don't know how to ride a horse, <laughs> from the rapture to the second coming, you got seven years to get your act together. I'm just saying. <laughs> how many don't know how to ride a horse? Uh-huh. How many are from Texas and you just born this way? Right. Yeah. Our family just knows. Anyway, so moving on. So he's saying, when Jesus appears, I want you to be so remaining in Jesus so that when he appears, intimacy is so tight, you have two things. What have I told you? You have confidence when you see Jesus. Oh, yes. And no shame. I can stand there looking him right in the eyes. No shame. Wow. Why is this an essential doctrine? Uh, well, this is a whole sermon series. I, sum I summarize it for you. Why is it so important? Because you as a Christian are going to give an account for your spiritual walk before Jesus himself. Between you and him, you can't go, hey, Pastor Marty, can you come? I need to back up. Mm -mm. Let me call my husband in here. Uh -uh. No, it's, it's you and Jesus. He wants to see how well did you run the spiritual race? You have to give account. The older I get, the more I think about this. Give me some ideas. Romans 14, verse 10. Paul says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Why? Well, we should all, we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee, Christian or non-Christian, shall bow to me. And every tongue will give me praise, whether you are an atheist or a devout believer. So then each one of us will give account to himself to God. 
The Christian, how well I stayed with you, Jesus. The lost at a whole nother judgment at the end of time, different judgment seat, no hope of walking into heaven. They only see their works and their works are found wanting because the only work that saves a man is the work of Christ. But you give account. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. What did Paul say? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? That each one Christian may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done and whether good or bad. He's talking to Christians. Because there's Christians that are mature in the faith and walk close with Jesus and apply the scriptures and grow up in him. And there's ones that do and don't and do and don't and don't and do. You know what I'm saying? Read the New Testament. You see it all over the place. One day you have to stand before Christ and give account. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation as a Christian, which is what we are doing as Christians, building on the foundation of Christ by our lives, uh, the foundation, if, if it's gold that you build with, or silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each man's work, he's speaking to Christians in 1 Corinthians 3, will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is not to be revealed with fire, uh, it, because it was, will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality, not the quantity, the quality of each man's work. If any man's works which has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward from who? Jesus. Jesus is going to reward who? You. He says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. Meaning, some Christians, their life will be put into the test of fire of, of Jesus himself. And he says, I want to see just how well you did when you ran the race for me. And what's, what happens? It was wood, hay, and stubble. Not much to show. And what, what, do they lose their salvation? No, he says you don't you lose your salvation. They'll suffer loss, but he himself will be what? Saved. There will be others that the Lord will pull out and go, oh, wow, I see some gold here from that grandma that prayed for your grandchildren for 40 years. I see that, I see that grandpa that, that worked at the church and did things that nobody even knew about. There's some gold here. There's some silver here. I mean, this stuff will preach all day long. What are you producing? Gold, silver, or wood, hay, stubble? Because the Lord is going to, re- he's going to reward you. Now, the whole concept of the Bema seat, um, and I, I can go into the history of the Bema seat, but since our time is short, I'll just summarize it for you. In a Jewish synagogue was a Bema seat. It's a raised platform. I, I see them when I take biz- people to Israel. There's a table on it. There's an open scroll of the Torah. This is where they would read the word of God to the congregation seated around the perimeter of the synagogue. Um, it was a place of judgment in Roman, uh, in Roman tribunals. It's a place of judgment. Uh, they would carry the Bema seat into battle. And after our Roman uh, army was victorious, they'd bring a Bema seat in. They would seat, set Caesar on it. And he would hand out uh, rewards to those soldiers who, who battled valiantly. They used it at Grecian games to give uh, or, or the runners who won uh, perishable wreaths for being the winners. It was before a Bema seat. When the scriptures tell you you're going to stand before the judgment bar of God, it's telling you you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a Christian. I live, I don't know how you live, I live in light of the fact that I have to give account one day. And Jesus does not care how much you did. Let's see, Marty, how big was your church? Oh, it was over 2,000 people? Awesome. That's awesome. You think he's going to care about that? No, because there, you know, 75% of the churches in the United States are under 100 people. Did you hear me? Do you know that, that <laughs> there's a lot of godly men in those churches shepherding those people, and they're in obscurity but they're great people of God. See what I mean? I used to be a pastor in a little church like that. The Lord doesn't care about how big. He doesn't care how many. Well, Lord, in my lifetime, I led 1,000 people to Jesus. 
Jesus is going to say, well, we'll deal with your pride in just a minute. Um, <laughs> see, he doesn't care about quantity. We care about quantity, right? He doesn't care about it. He cares about quality. He cares about the motivation why you did what you did. Remember, Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Because we, we trumpet stuff all the time. Well, I made a donation, you know, that GoFundMe for that poor family. And uh, I gave them, you know, $10,000. And praise God. You let people know that? You just lost your what? Reward. So you are going to be rewarded as a Christian. So you should live in light of the fact you have to give account one day. And when the Lord puts your whole Christian walk in that flaming fire to test it, who'd want to be standing there with not much coming out? Uh, what kind of crowns is he going to give you? This is a whole other sermon. Remember why I told you this is the reason why we're studying one verse. What kind of crowns is he going to hand out? I'll give you a couple of them. Crown of righteousness. Who gets that? Those who finish the spiritual race by living righteously. When Paul says, I have fought the, good, I fought the fight, I, 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 you know, I've lived well, I now go on to my eternal reward, he's talking about this. That all the way to the end, you follow hard after Jesus. Crown of righteousness. Crown of life is given to those who persevered under trial, adversity, and persecution. Go pick any, any Christian around the world facing adversity or persecution. Pick the country. When they stand before Christ, he's going to say, I saw what you did. I saw your courage. Crown of glory given to elders of the church who served well. Uh, we have elders in this church, spiritual leaders of this church. I'm one of them. It's not easy to lead a church. It's an awesome calling. It's a humbling thing. But one day, elders that led well will stand before Christ, and he will say, I will reward you, my servant. Crown of exaltation is given to those who win souls to Christ. Well, uh, you know, I just, I, it's not my thing to lead people to Jesus. I, you know, I just, you know, I just let them see Jesus in me. Well, they can't, they can't get saved if they don't hear the word of the gospel. So when you lead people to Christ, one person, five people, ten people, you're rewarded when you see Christ for being a soul winner. Where do you think Billy Graham's going to be on that day? Uh, huh? But suppose he did it all for the wrong motivation. You see what I mean? This is the scary part of God. He looks at your heart. Billy, why'd you do that? Lord, because you know I love you and people needed to know you. And the Lord's going to say, here's a crown. You know, what are you going to do with those crowns when you get them? You're going to give them back to him. Or Revelation 4, 10 through 11 says you will. Because otherwise, knowing us, we'd be strutting around like peacocks with those crowns, huh? <laughs> you know, there, and there goes, you know, uh, so-and-so taught our Sunday school class for 40 years. Yeah, wow, man, she can hardly hold her head up. Look at all the crowns. You know what I'm saying? That, that's us, you know? But, but what are you going to do? You're going to take your crown that Jesus gave you that, hey, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you're going to say, Lord, all I ever did was just love you. And you're going to take those crowns, and it says in Revelation 4, 10 through 11, you're going to take them and lay them at the feet of Jesus. And I'm sure you're going to probably be crying when you do it. Just, Lord, I, this is, I couldn't even be on this holy ground if it wasn't out for you. This crown's for you. I mean, imagine the moment. It, there's going to be a lot of crying, I think, at that moment. You know, now, we've got to get back to my sermon before we close. He said, I want you to be two things when Jesus appears. When he hands out those crowns, I want you to be confident. And I don't want you to have any shame. I have to ask you, if you were to appear today, you confident that you're going to give an account? Or are you going to be shameless? This Lord, no problem. Uh, when, when I was a young man, uh, back in the early 70s during the Vietnam War, they, uh, my parents, uh, my dad's best friend took a job with Nixon's administration, working back here uh, with U.S. Treasury Customs Department. So we drove here uh, during Vietnam. And so we, we went to um, um, Arlington one day. Uh, and you could hear all the rifle teams shooting during the day. I saw them. 
bearing soldiers killed in Nam. Uh, and we, we went to go to the tomb of the un, unknown soldier. One of the most awesome things I've ever seen as a young kid. You know, you get there and it's like, you don't speak. You show respect. And then you watch the soldiers come out, the honor guard with the rifles. And you, you, you stand there and you watch the commanding officer, you know, drill the guy who's coming out to take over command of the strip. And it's an awesome thing, is it not? He flips that rifle around every which way, opens the chamber, checks the bayonet, you know, dust on it with this white glove. And I mean, he checks everything. Then he goes around behind that soldier, checks out his uniform. It's, it's unbelievable. But when that soldier comes out with that rifle to take over that guard duty, he's confident. He's totally confident. Yes, sir. My belt's polished, buckle, shoes, clothes on, beautifully pressed, hats on right, rifles clean, etc. That soldier's confident. I couldn't help but think about that this morning. I was watching that, that drill this morning. I'm thinking, if I was that soldier, would I be confident? If you are a Christian soldier, are you going to be confident that when Jesus bears, you're going, oh, yes. Lastly, will you have no shame because of how you've been living the Christian walk? No shame. I don't know about you. I'm ready to stand before him and give account. I know my heart. I know my motivations. And the Lord knows. And I'm ready to stand. And just, I just want to hear a couple words from him. Well done. What's the rest of it? Good and faithful servant. Jesus is coming to earth again, the old hymn says. What if we're forward today? Coming the power and love to reign. What if it were today? Coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and the purified over this whole earth scattered wide. What if it, what if it were today? The chorus, <laughs> glory, glory. Joy to my heart will bring. Glory, glory, when we shall crown him king. Glory, glory, haste to prepare the day. Glory, glory, Jesus is going to come someday. John says, yeah, and I want you as my little church to be ready. I want you to be ready confident and with no shame because you walk so closely with Christ you are absolutely happy to see him have a great day you know what you need to do today right is get tight with Christ let's pray God touch and anoint us so that we can live a life that pleases you forgive us if we haven't thank you that you're forgiven and merciful and you restore the the sheep that's lost and get us back into the fold and doing what we need to do and for those who aren't even part of the fold save them today because they come to you in simple faith And may we all be collectively ready for the trumpet when it sounds to give account. In Jesus' name, amen.